Hey, Mike. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you, Corey? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. This is my first time in the seat as the official co-host. I was declared last episode, and now I'm official, so it feels good. It feels good. It feels like I'm... Chair's more comfy today. The microphone feels better in front of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was sharing with you before we hit record, but uh, I've gotten some, some great feedback from people who said that you're doing a good job, so it's not just me saying nice things because I want someone to talk to books about. Well, thank you for those of you who, who said nice things. I appreciate that. Um, that's, that's very good because you throw these things out there sometimes and you hope, you hope somebody's getting value out of them. So I appreciate that. Um, I got one for you, Mike. I didn't do the mind map today because I wasn't, like I got down, I got my notes and I said, okay, I'm going to organize these and I'm going to get ready to think about how I want to talk about the book. And the mind map just didn't feel right. And I don't know why. It just didn't feel like the, the mechanism I wanted to go for. So... Uh, I went with Notion and I went through and I put those in there and organized them and then I went back through again and highlighted them. And I don't want to go into like the details of whether I think it worked well or not right now. We could do that later maybe. That would be that'd be fun to do later. Um, but what I'll tell you is I think it's going to be as productive or hopefully more productive than, um, than the mind map. So I might not be a mind map convert like I thought I was going to be a mind map convert. Uh, I'm a little sad, but understandable. This isn't a great book for a mind map anyways. Uh, I mean, I did it anyways. And, uh, yeah, I, I, we were chatting before and I mentioned that I'm going to start actually creating these, uh, landing pages. I've done a few of them for people. So if you do want the, the notes from, for my notes from this book, I'll, I'll have a link in the, the show notes where you can download it. And I do share these in my newsletter now. Uh, so this has kind of become a thing, but, um, yeah, this one in particular just didn't really jive with the mind map format as easily as some of the other books that we've read, which it's a book about learning. So I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, we're, we're jumping the gun here, but this book kind of surprised me on a couple of different levels. So I'm excited to, I'm excited to talk to you about it. I'm excited to hear your, your opinion on it. So um, first thing we have to do is we have to follow up on action items. So Mike, are you willing to take us through your action items? Uh, your first one was check out, um, a design your life workshop. You did that kind of right. So what's your status on that? Any update? I've checked it out enough to know that I'm not interested. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. I've also, uh, checked it out enough to know that I should be doing stuff like this. <laughs> yes. Yes, I think you could very much do that. Um, like I told you before, I do a mini version of, of that. It's it's really, as I as I went through the book, it's very different than what they do there. Um, but I do it for academics. So for faculty members who want to figure out how to combine research, teaching, and service. So yes, I would agree. Having done it and then seeing how they do it, you would, you're fair game. And it's right there, teed up for you. You just need to need to knock it out of the park. Yeah. So that kind of relates to something. Um, I think this is later on in uh, my follow-up items. Maybe it wasn't an official one, but we talked last time about my brainstorming with the uh, the community. Oh yeah, that is one on here. Start planning my yep. community. Yep. Um, and you pressured me to have a landing page link ready by the time this one goes out. So that's still a work in progress, the landing page link, but I have been thinking a lot about the community and these workshops, that's actually going to be a part of it. So they'll be, uh, I'll, I'll do them like one off. You can sign up for them like a paid webinar sort of a thing, but I do plan to have 
a version of the community where you get access to all that that kind of stuff uh, built in. That's awesome. So I, I'm gonna start doing these more regularly. I'm still trying to nail down the cadence, but I'm thinking one a quarter. And I've got a couple of topics kind of I've uh, been thinking about. I think the place to start obviously is like, how do I take book notes? I've, I've even done that presentation for other people as a paid workshop. Why would I not do it <laughs> for myself? Especially since it's kind of evolved a little bit. I mean, it's largely the same. I still do the mind map and I have my own system, but uh, every book we read, you know, kind of changes the, uh, or solidifies or causes me to change some, some minor things. So, um, I guess I'll, I'll have the link to the, <laughs> the, uh, uh, community signup page in the, um, in the, the show notes here, but, uh, I'll share the one to the workshop as soon as it's, as soon as it's that's ready. your, that's your second accountability mechanism, right? The first one was you had to talk about it today. The next one is you have to have it in the show notes for the time the show goes out. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I got about a week to <laughs> pull it all together Good, good. <laughs> in the middle of finishing up my practical PKM cohort. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? No, no, no. Okay, so next one you had was create engagement, energy, and flow mind maps. Were you able to do that? Yeah, although I didn't actually do it as individual mind maps. I did it as part of the same mind map. I just had three okay. different branches. Uh, the last book, it was a little bit weird the way that they described uh, mind mapping. And that actually was another topic that I was thinking about for a, a workshop. It's like mind mapping in general. I've made courses on on that before. I use it all the time. I've got like thousands of mind maps and in, in mind note, not just the the book notes. So, um, but yeah, I have like the different sections for engagement, energy, and flow. And um, it was it wasn't as uh, insightful as I thought it was going to be. Uh, the big takeaways here were: I tend to get into flow when I'm doing stuff solo. So like writing or reading or even like building business systems, which is maybe kind of weird to some people, but I mean, that was my previous job was like business mm -hmm. systems, director of operations, essentially integrator. And so like systems are kind of my thing. <laughs> I love, uh, I love tweaking those. Uh, the energy and engagement ones though, were largely the same. Uh, the things that I get really engaged with and the things that give me a lot of energy are basically when I can do live stuff with other people. Uh, yeah, so that makes sense. recording a podcast is, is that to a, a certain degree, but I, I think more so even than that, it's like the, the coaching type stuff. So it would be like the workshops that we were talking about, or like the cohort that I'm going through right now. Like I built out, I had in the last session that I, I did, I, I walked through like the task dashboard and all the different ways that you can do task management in Obsidian and how I manage and track my habits and all this kind of stuff. And I created like, 130 little screencast clips that I put into my keynote. And every time I do one of these cohorts, I'm like, well, I did one previously. This is the third one. I'll just use what I had last time. I literally redid every yep. single screencast. And then at the end, I'm like, okay, so that was a lot. Like I was really excited and I really liked showing it to everybody. And everyone at the end was like, that was amazing, but it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and if you're like me, um, you'll do that. I don't know if you'll do that every time, but you'll do that for the first like three, four, five times. And then you'll get to the groove and you'll be like, okay, these are good enough. I need to focus my time in other places. So yeah, yeah. I will get there, I'm sure. But the thing that really uh, was eye-opening to me is like not the presentation of the technical stuff. Like that's kind of cool. And I like I like showing those videos and, and seeing people on Zoom, like their eyes get real big. Like I didn't know you could do that. 
But what really lights me up is at the end when people ask the questions. And I feel like I, I know enough to help point them in the right direction. It's like, I have no idea what to do in this situation. What, what do you have for me? You know, and then I like go into my thing. And then at the end, like, so does that make sense? Like, oh yeah, that was great. You know, that's exactly what I needed. That is the thing yeah. that I absolutely love. So let me ask a question on this one. Um, you get energy from those live events. Do you find yourself, because you've, you've admitted you're an introvert, do you find yourself <laughs> yeah. on the tail end of that, that like a half hour later, an hour later, you're just drained? Or does it, does it have a long tail? Like, do you stay energized longer than that? Uh, no, I definitely crash, although I'm getting okay. better at managing it. I feel like I don't get quite as high or quite as low. But there was a point where like my wife and I have our date night on Tuesday, and we would always record Focused on Tuesdays. And um, the days that I would record Focus, like afterwards, I would just be a, a puddle of mush. Like I, I couldn't do anything. And she's like, what the heck is wrong with you? And I'm like, I, I recorded a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm the, I'm the same way. They're like, I love teaching. Teaching gives me energy. Interacting with students, it's so much fun. And then I get to like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm just drained. Like I'm just absolutely spent because <laughs> yeah. it was so much fun. And it was so high that like the low drops low. So... All right, good. Let's move to the next one you had. You had make a list of your mentors. Were you able to do that? Uh, kind of. This needs more work. Um, I have a general list of some of my mentors, but I, I didn't get as much time to build this out as I had hoped. So again, didn't really get the insight that I wanted from this specific one. I would kind of mark this as a failure on, on my end. Um, the other ones were pretty much, I was pretty much able to follow through with all of those, uh, including the examine my morning routine. I mean, I talked about habits this week in the the cohort, so I had to do that. <laughs> had to update yeah. the slides. Um, what I discovered from my morning routine is that over time, I have been creeping towards, okay, I'm awake, time to get to work. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So it forced me to kind of reset and realize that that first hour of my day, like that is sacred time. And I really need to protect that for the routine and nothing else. I need to shut down the part of my brain that is telling me that because I am upright, I need to be yes. working. <laughs> yes. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more that I found myself in that routine. It's been over the last you know, week or two that I've really stepped, uh, took a step back and said, no, 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 take the time this morning to do what makes sense to do first, right? Um, and, yep. and for me, that's you know, uh, prayer, meditation, reading the Bible, right? Like, so like take the time to do those things first, because if you don't do that, you're probably going to not do it today. Like you're probably <laughs> going to figure out a way to push it away. Um, and, and I've found that over the last two weeks, that's been huge for me. So that's cool. That's cool that you've realized that. How about you? You had a couple of them. Yeah. So mine were identify gravity and anchor problems in my life. And what I've tried to do as I've identified problems is I've tried to separate those two. And what I've realized is that Things that, sorry, I guess what I've realized is it's harder to tell between an anchor problem and a gravity problem than I thought it would be. Um, that there's actually a little bit of overlap between those two, and something that I clearly came out and said, no, this is a, this is definitely a gravity problem. It's really just like a deep seated anchor problem. Like that anchor is really, really stuck into the ground. But there are definitely ways around it that I'm not thinking about, or ways around it that we as an institution aren't thinking about. Um, so it's it's much more of like a really intense anchor problem and not truly a gravity problem. So the, my big learning from that is um, don't overthink 
you know, or don't over-prioritize gravity because gravity is the easy way out. Oh, that's hard. Boom. <laughs> I'm just not going to worry about it, you know, because I have to design around it. No, no, maybe it's just a really hard anchor problem and you have to, you have to work through that. My second one was uh, reframe, um, do the failure reframe exercise. So reframe my failures for the last three failures. I did not do that for the last three. Um, I did it for a couple of them uh, that I've had uh, lately. And I'll, I'll tell you what, this is a, it's a valuable exercise. It, it's really one that changes the way you think about it and takes it from something that potentially impacts you negatively mentally. And you're like, oh man, like that, that's a really kind of a low point in the week to go, oh yeah, that wasn't awesome, but look at how much better I can become out of that. Or look at what I can learn uh, through that, through that process. So, so that's been good for me to, to do the failure reframe exercise. That's one that I will definitely keep um, doing as more failures pop up because, you know, I have, I have this philosophy that, you know, if I'm not failing seven out of 10 times, I'm not trying, like, I'm not really pushing the boundary, right? Like if, if I'm, you know, hitting that goal or hitting that, that achievement too many times, am I really trying to push to do the fun, the hard, the, the things that stretch me? Um, and a lot of people look at me and they're like, wait, you, you want to fail more than you, more than you succeed. And I'm like, appropriately. Yes. But I'll get some side eye looks uh, for that one. So. <laughs> Nice. All righty. So those are our those are our action items. Um, are you ready to move into the book? Let's do it. All right. So this week uh, we're going to talk about "Learn Like a Pro" by Barbara Oakley and Olav Schwe, which I think is how you pronounce his last name. Uh, the full title of the book is "Learn Like a Pro: Science Based Tools to Become Better at Anything." Um, uh, the book is divided up into 11 sections, a tiny little introduction, which is basically like a, hey, readers, this is what you should think about. And then a checklist at the end, which is a really interesting kind of summary of the whole thing. Um, and we'll just move, if you're good with it, we'll move right into the intro in, in chapter one. So uh, just real briefly on the, the book, it's pretty short. It's shorter than I thought it was going to be. I think it's only like 117 pages. And there are yes. quite a few, um, quite a few visuals that go along with it. I thought it was kind of weird that there were no parts to this book because there's definitely some significant themes that they talk about, which I guess like that's one of the general things about this is I feel like this is really written for students. Um, there are definitely sections of it where it's very generalizable and just about anybody can benefit from this stuff. But uh, there is definitely a part of it where it's like, this is how you study for tests and stuff like that. So yeah, I felt it very easily could have been broken up into uh, a couple different sections and that maybe would have helped the flow a little bit. I would agree with that. I would agree that it's written to students because I think if I had to guess, right, you always try to back up and say, well, how did this book generate? This book generated because Barbara Oakley went back to school to do engineering and there were some things she had to learn through that process. And she was like, well, if I needed to learn this stuff, somebody else might need to learn this stuff. And then she did the research and kind of, kind of rolled it from there. So that's um, the best kind of books. Yeah, exactly. I would agree with you. Uh, so from the intro or from the, the sections actually titled to our readers, um, you know, they call out the fact that people would say like, I'm terrible at, or I can't learn, or I can't do the thing. Um, and what they wanted you to do is change your focus or what they, what they suggest is change your focus on. Maybe you're just not doing it right. 
Like maybe you're just <laughs> approaching it from a, from a perspective that doesn't make sense. And it's not that you can't learn that language or you can't learn the program or you can't learn these other things. It's just the way you're trying to do it isn't the most effective, uh, the most effective way. Now, the second one was basically they say this little book. So they acknowledge. And one of the things you called it out um, that I, I had in the back of my head, the notes section of this book is like gigantic. I mean, it yeah. feels it feels huge. There's there's notes for each chapter. Um, and I was trying to figure out and I, I didn't take enough time to actually do this, how the notes section differed from the bibliography section. <laughs> but I, I just I didn't really uh, dig into that. Um, but basically, you know, they call out that it's, it's a short, concise book. It's meant to be a short, concise book, which would point me to as well that it's meant for students. It's meant for yep. younger folks to get a, a quicker uh, path through it. But then they say the very best of practical learning tools and insights. And you don't have to tell me right now, but Mike, before we end this conversation, I would like to know <laughs> if you think this is the very best of practical tools and insights. Uh, anything else on the intro before we move to one? Um, no, but I'm having a hard time resisting answering that question right now. Just do it then. <laughs> Just do it. Go ahead. Okay. Well, it's not. Uh, I'll say that because they uh, talk about some productivity principles, which are good. I feel like the stuff that they share is, is actually good. And there was some insightful stuff here that helped solidify some things for me. However, I think uh, that there's a whole big section um, that's missing and maybe uh, maybe i just glanced over it but uh, i'm we were talking about mind maps before i feel like that is a, a topic where they didn't really even address it and if they did they certainly didn't go into any sort of depth about how it could no. be helpful they mentioned concept maps yeah they, they'd mentioned concept maps but there's a whole lot more there and it feels like a lot of the stuff that they're sharing is list-based, outline-based, uh, and I forget the official terms, but there's there's different types of, of different ways that people think. And the outline view clicks with one type of people. The visual mapping kind of clicks with another type of person. However, even if you consider yourself an outline person, you can gain additional insights by having the the mind map or the, the concept mapping piece to it. So I think this is in terms of like really learning something you need to have kind of these two balanced approaches, which is honestly why I like MindNode so much because it gives you the mind map and the outline for free side by side. And when you look at both of those, every t every single time I do that, I feel like I get additional insights. Why when I bring my notes over to Obsidian, I've got the mind map, but then I export it as a markdown and I have all that markdown in there as the, the outline too. And then I can break it apart and link atomic notes together and, and things like that. But I, I felt like, this was kind of heavy on the outline uh, approach and it's based off of somebody's experience. So you can't really fault them for that. But the whole idea of concept mapping, like they kind of did it lip service, but they didn't really talk about it at all. And it's going to be uh, a very, very much a missing piece to, to a, um, I, I'm not really sure how to, how they're framing this. I forget the, the, the science-based tools to become better at anything for certain types of people in certain types of situations <laughs> yes. really is what it is. Yep. I agree. Uh, and, and one of the things that I think is interesting about that too, is the how to, so every, t the title of every chapter starts with how to, et cetera, yep. how to, et cetera, how to do, et cetera. So I think it's as much as a like mini tutorial, like you said, for certain types of people in certain situations. And I think if you're coming to this from 
zero, like from absolutely nowhere, good. It's a good place to start. Like we're, we're hitting some of those high level things, but it's almost like a launch point to then figure out what works with you and then go figure out more later on down the road. And again, that would tie me back to if it has a student focus to it, that actually makes a ton of sense because that's where students are. Like students aren't at the level necessarily where they're going to go crazy into this. They really just want to know like, how do I get better at X? Okay. Here's a how to guide for that. All right. So let's move into the uh, chapter one. So chapter one is how to focus intently and beat procrastination. And this will be, I, I, there were a couple of different times in this book where I went, huh, Mike, huh, Mike, right? Like, and I, and I just, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear you talk about it. So we start off with the Pomodoro technique, right? I, I, my question for you, Mike, is how many times in the 190 episodes that you've done here has the Pomodoro technique come up in one of these books? Well, I had the same thought. I'm like, oh, Pomodoro, like everybody knows about the Pomodoro. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, actually, maybe not everybody does know about yep. the Pomodoro because I feel like maybe in the circles that I've, I've ran in and the places that I've worked, I hear about it a lot more than the average person. So um, the Pomodoro technique is definitely the place to start. And they do a pretty good job of describing it. Uh, because a lot of times when people talk about the Pomodoro technique, they just focus on the timer aspect. You set the 25-minute timer, you do the thing, and then you take a five-minute break. But they added a couple steps, which I think were good, in that before you sit down to do the 25 minutes of work, you have to eliminate as many distractions as you can. Yes. And then once you set the timer, you have to focus intently on your work. Those two additional steps, while they may seem obvious, I feel are very important when you are just trying to uh, to learn the Pomodoro technique maybe for the first time. I think it could save you a lot of trial and error maybe. Uh, and then they get into some of the, the brain science behind like what happens when you are doing the Pomodoro technique, uh, like things you don't want to do. They activate this insular cortex, which is the pain in the brain. I like that description, but it usually disappears after about 20 minutes. And that's kind of the the thing is like, that's why the 25 minute timer is set because you get to the end of it and then you realize, oh, that thing that I was dreading, I don't dread it anymore. And then it's kind of a, a jolt to your system. Like, well, why were you dragging your feet on the, the thing? And then you're like, oh yeah, I guess maybe next time I'll just do the thing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. The, the, the big piece that you, you summarized it well, the big piece that comes out to me here is about what to do during the break. And they, and they call out the fact that it's like, put your phone away. Don't really be distracted by these other things because that doesn't help you process. That doesn't help you recall. That doesn't help you work through things. And um, I can't remember if they mentioned it or not, but like one of the biggest things I think you can do is get up, move. Uh, and then for me, it would be like, get outside, right? So get sunshine, you know, get some vitamin D, uh, do something like that. If you can't get outside because it's too cold or it's too icy or whatever, at least walk around the hallways and, and do something. The trick to that though is what I've found is if you're in a social environment sometimes you get pulled into that and your five minute break turns into a 20 minute break and now your whole <laughs> yeah. your whole system gets messed up but I really like what they what they call out here is that the fact that there are distinct times for distinct things and I think that's a that's a really valuable thing for the Pomodoro technique at least it's been for me uh, when I've when I've tried to use it do you use it much I don't I don't I have um around my office somewhere I have there was a Kickstarter for this Essington glass with the little like nanospheres that I'm going on. So it's like a really fancy, um, oh, there it is on my bookshelf back there. 
a really fancy Pomodoro timer. And I did use that at first because when you flip it over, it creates that sound and that's kind of, that becomes an auditory cue of it's time to get to work. However, I probably haven't run the Pomodoro technique in like four or five years. Yeah. And that is largely in part because I've developed my own system for like planning my day and things like that. And one of the things that I really believe and hammer on in like the cohorts and stuff is just because something's on your task list doesn't mean that you should necessarily do it. <laughs> you got to be thinking about, is this actually important to me? Especially if you get in out of the academic world where the things that you have to do are the assignments that are required for the class you get into a workplace setting and now you've got work email and people can just dump their trash on your lawn and walk away, you have to establish some barriers. So I think yes. at that point, you know, it's not how can I squeeze out as much as humanly possible with the energy that I have available? Like who cares if yep. you have energy? You're getting paid to work. You're going to show up and work. <laughs> yes, so exactly. Exactly. It's really like a filtering that is going to produce the the value for the organization of selecting the right activities, not, well, I have to do this thing. So how do I make myself do it? Yeah, I think I think for me, I don't use it anymore either. And a, and a large part of it's because, and I don't know if you've said this somewhere, or if I've read this in a book somewhere, but it's like focus is a muscle, right? And the more you train the the focus muscle, the more you can focus, and the longer you can focus. And I started out having to do Pomodoro, and it worked really, really well. Now I typically did a fifty-five um, five or a fifty-ten, but it was because I was reading like long-form articles and I was writing bigger things. But now it's to the point where if I throw the music on, you know, I actually, they're, they're going to talk about it later, these um, binaural beats. Mm -hmm. If I throw music like that on, I mean, I can just drop into to focus mode and I don't need a timer anymore. Um, actually, I, I run the other side of the risk where it's like I get so into it that I lose track and and I'm so focused in, in that. Um, that time. Okay. So the next thing they hit, they hit here is um, be wary of multitasking. Uh, they, they call out a bunch of different things that you have attention residue. So things are left over in your attention that you're not thinking about. This actually ties into something they talk about later, which is this diffuse learning mm -hmm. or this diffuse um, way of thinking. They, t they say frequently switching, uh, frequently task switching increases susceptibility to distraction, more errors, slow work, um, makes uh, writing worse and diminishes learning. They have a bunch of those uh, things we can get, um, we can reduce our fixation on the task or our focus on the task. Uh, so they call out, they call out um, multitasking as a, as a bad thing, which we've all heard that many, many times before. I like the fact that they, they go into earmuffs and they actually give you a brand of earmuffs, which I think is pretty hilarious here. And they do that throughout the book where they'll actually give you specific apps or brands of things uh, to try out which I think is really good for a how-to book, but at the same time, it, it makes the, and tell me if I'm using this, this term right, it, like, it loses the evergreen nature of the content because I might go look up some of these things and they don't exist anymore, and what do I do? Like, how do I, uh, you know, what do I do uh, when that? So we then get to distraction-free environment, take frequent breaks, um, music and uh, binaural beats, uh, and then meditation and yoga. And the one I want to call out here is, you know, I know you've gone into the meditation realm a little bit, right? You've started to think about, you know, mindful meditation and things like that. But they actually say, eh, we can't really draw confirmed conclusions. And they kind of just, you know, boom, and it's real short. And then they, and they call it out there. So that <laughs> summarizes our, our chapter one. Any thoughts on that? Uh, just that the, the point about not using your phone during a break, I think is really good. And the attention residue is a real thing. 
but um again that was not uh that was not new to me mm-hmm. um that was one of the first well that and the pomodoro essentially were like the first things i learned when i started studying productivity like 10 years ago so again you know maybe this is geared towards your an introductory into uh into these these types of concepts which you know makes sense that then it, that it's in uh, in chapter 1 but nothing really profound here in my opinion Okay, good. So let's move to chapter two. Chapter two is the how to of o- how to overcome being stuck. So how to overcome being stuck. Uh, the key one of the key points they make in this section is um, as long as you're you're focusing on a particular topic, you're blocking the activities um, of your diffuse mode on that topic. So they call out this distinction between focused mode and diffuse mode and focused mode is like okay i'm editing a paper so i'm looking at the inst like the actual small level sentence structure and am i using the right words in the right places and and overall the diffuse mode would be i'm thinking about the ideas of what to write and i would have never this is this was an interesting finding for me because i would i would have wouldn't have thought to call it focused mode and diffuse mode but i i do this so this is the shower thoughts right like i start thinking about a thing but then it just kind of stews in the back of my brain and all of a sudden this idea pops up or this new creative thing pops up or walking to um, work or driving the car or doing something like that. And what I think one of the things that came out for me on this is, is me constantly having a podcast in my ear or an audio book in my ear. Is it messing with my diffuse mode? And I think (laughs) it is. And I don't like that. But at the same time, I like listening to things. I like having people, you know, speak into me. So I thought that was a really interesting point at a at a chapter two. Well, I'm not sure that it's messing with your diffuse mode. I mean, I guess potentially. Uh, I don't really like the distinction here of the focus mode and the diffuse mode, by the way, uh, because I feel like I've got a better model from when I read Hyperfocus by Chris Bailey, and. Full disclosure, I guess, Chris Bailey is a friend of mine at this point, but his book Hyperfocus uh, talks about how there's the hyperfocus side where we're so zeroed in on this is what we're doing, and then there's the scatter focus side is how he describes it. And I feel like that scatter focus is a much better definition than the <laughs> diffuse mode. <laughs> like that makes more sense to me. Like oh, I'm not focusing on one thing, so my focus is scattered. Yeah, that that clicks. Whereas like diffuse is like, well, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> are we talking yeah, about yeah. camera gear? <laughs> uh, what sort of lens are you using there, bro? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That makes sense. So scatter mind. Yeah, so, and Chris talks about how you have to kind of intentionally go back and forth between these different modes. And, and Chris is a really smart dude. Uh, he gave a TED Talk at one point and the description I remember from the TED Talk, it's like Chris Bailey, the most productive man you'd ever hope to meet. And he kind of like, he's a really humble dude. So every time I, I see him I'm like, oh, hey, there's the most productive man you never hope to meet. And he's like, ah, knock it off. <laughs> yeah, that's but, funny. But uh, I, I do think that like he he knows his stuff. And so he talks about how with hyperfocus, you can't do that for extremely long. I mean, some of the same concepts that they're talking about in this book, but if you're gonna like, re- if you want to go deeper on this topic, go read Hyperfocus. It's a it's a really good book, um, and it describes, I think, more practically how you can do this sort of thing. So, like one of the things that Chris talks about in, in that book is, is he's got a whole chapter on collecting dots, 
and how there are certain dots that are really useful, but they're not that entertaining. And there's like this, this spectrum, you know, there's useful, there's balanced, there's entertaining. And then there's like the trashy stuff is like, that's never going to be useful. I feel like with podcasts, maybe that's higher entertainment, not quite as useful. There, there, you could get really useful stuff from a podcast too. I guess it kind of depends which ones you listen to and how you're going to be listening to them. But just the fact that it's going on in the background, I don't think that's necessarily uh, working against the scatter focus or diffuse mode. You just got to recognize that when you're doing that, you're not, you're not wringing out every drop of value you can from the words that are being spoken. But as long as you're okay with that, like who cares? Yeah. And maybe, and maybe that's a good distinction that I hadn't had until right now is there are certain podcasts where I should be doing them in more of the hyper-focus mode and I should be taking notes while I'm listening to that. And then there are other ones that are much more background scatterbrained or scatter focus mode. Um, and that's, that's okay. Like I'm driving to work and I don't really need to take notes on this. I really just care about, you know, the new thing that came out or what's happening in this, in this world. And that's all right. So, so I got to okay, jump in right here and ask you like, where does bookworm land on that then? Is that one of those ones that you should be taking notes on? So the way I, the way I used to listen to it is it depended on the book. Okay. So there were certain books you all would cover where I really wanted to get something out of that book, you know, and I was like, okay, let's see what these guys have to say about this. And then there were other ones that were just like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm driving to work. I don't, I don't really care. Like, let's just, let's just throw bookworm on. Um, <laughs> so it all just depended on the episode, like, which is not normal for me with all my podcasts. Like there are very few. So another one would be, um, Andrew Huberman's podcast. Yeah. So he runs, he runs one where it's about like health and wellness and fitness and things like that. And there are certain ones that I just don't listen to because I'm just like, yeah, I don't care about that one. Or there are other ones where I'm like, I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to take notes because it's so, it's so intriguing and it's so, so interesting to me. So that's, that's interesting. I would like to think that we have very high quality conversations, but I would still, uh, say that people don't take notes listening to bookworm because that kind of taps into the 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 thing with like audiobooks is like oh well I know that because I listened to it no you don't no no you don't you you didn't you didn't engage with the material in a meaningful way to really solidify this stuff and so I, I at first you know when Joe and I started this podcast we thought people would be reading along with us and it turned out that a lot of people were listening to the 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 podcast as kind of like a filter as to whether they were going to read the book. And over time, I feel like that is the ideal way to do this. Grab something that's entertaining that you can listen to on your commutes or when you're at the gym or when you're doing chores around the house, but you're not going to stop on your riding lawnmower because I say Mm -hmm. something profound and jot down a note. Just recognize that that may trigger something, open up a loop in your brain, like, oh, that book, those ideas that they were discussing, that sounds interesting. I'm yeah. going to go study that further and then go pick up the book. And if you want to use the affiliate links that are in the show notes, cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then you have to do the additional work to really like make it your own. And I feel like we're in this place right now as a society where like we hear things or we watch a video on social media and I now know this thing. <laughs> it's the, the, I call it the internet philosophers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, I feel exactly. like that's, that's dangerous and we should all be rebelling against that as hard as we can whenever we can. Well, and, and I don't know about your philosophy, so I'd be interested to hear this. When I listen to an audiobook, if it's a nonfiction audiobook that I'm listening to, usually it's because I'm running yep. and I want a way to distract myself from the running. And all I'm trying to get is like one or two key ideas out of that book, 
right? Like, so I'll listen to a five hour audiobook because I'm like, okay, is there one or two things like, or are there one or two things I can grab from that book? And like, that is worth it to me. Like that is a value to me. It entertained me while I ran and it, it gave me one or two things. If I'm listening to a fiction book, I don't even care, right? It's just like, okay, it's in the background. It's, it's whatever is happening. So here's my question for you. Are there any podcasts that you actually listen to and take notes while you listen to them? Never. Never. I will occasionally, like if I'm out for a run and someone mentions something and I'm like, that sounds cool. I need to check that out. Then I'll capture a note inside of drafts and about once a week I'll process my drafts inbox. And if I still want to go check out that thing, I'll go check out the thing. <laughs> There've only been two for me. So there, there's one that's happening right now and it's because I'm using it to prepare for another thing. So, mm-hmm. but the only reason I do it is because I need that information to be successful in the other thing that I'm doing. Um, the only, uh, the other one was the exact same situation, but it was on a one-time deal. It's like they did an episode that was so valuable that I listened to it a second time and took notes on it um, um, the second time. So that's, that's interesting. Wow. Okay. I didn't expect us to go down the podcast rabbit hole. It can be valuable. That's the thing, but the things that you pick up, I guess when I'm listening to a podcast or an audiobook, I'll listen to audiobooks a lot of times when I want to just like read something again, or I've read the actual book and I just want to review some of the material. So I'll just, you know, play that instead of a podcast when I go for a run or whatever. But the fact that you're collecting this information, these are dots that are going into your brain that does have an effect whether or not you can recall it. So from the perspective of today's book, did you actually learn it? No, but that doesn't mean that it didn't have an impact. Yeah. <laughs> you can't regurgitate it on a test, but those are still dots that you've collected. And at some point you will connect them in the right conditions when the time is right and they will produce something useful. So I, you know, I try to curate the stuff that I listen to. I want it to be potentially useful, but I'm not trying to wring every ounce of value that I can out of it. It's just something that is on in the background and that stuff is maybe not getting as far down as if I were actually forcing myself to take notes on it right there, but that's okay because I have limited time, attention, and energy available to me. So I'll select my own spots when I'm going to dive deep on that stuff and decide what I really think about things. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right, so they they call diffuse mode the strategic weapon. Or what did what did Bailey call it? Scatter mode? Scatter focus, oh, yep. Scatter focus, right? So they call that the strategic weapon. And then they go into a, a series in chapter two of giving you techniques and methods, right? So they call it one they call the hard start technique. You scan over a test or a set of homework problems or something difficult. You mark the ones that are difficult, you work on them for a few minutes, and then you intentionally step away to let this diffuse mode or the scatter focus work in the background. Now, I advise this for my students on tests as well, but mine is purely based on timing. It has nothing to do with, <laughs> yep. you know, focus mode and, and diffuse mode. It's more a matter of students will burn 45 minutes on one problem and there's a 10 problem test. And I'm like, you can't do that. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're missing all these other points because you didn't get a chance to try. But then they also talk about diffuse mode in writing first drafts. They talk about using coffee shop or background noise or different places that'll like help pull you out of focus mode and into diffuse mode. The one that I like and that I'm, I'm ready to go on, the one that I like is the, um, the write or die app that they, they recommend. I've actually used <laughs> apps like this before where you set a timer or you set a word limit in an amount of time. And if you don't hit that number of words, it erases all of your writing. Now, 
this works for me on a bunch of different levels because one, it's motivating. It's like, I don't want to lose all that work that I did. But two, um, it was taught to me a, a long, long time ago that uh, writing is thinking. So the mm -hmm. reason why I like things like that is because it forces me to think about a thing and it forces me to think about it more than just like in the background of my brain, but I'm actually trying to type it as well. And I think about it more deeply. And then even if I do get to the situation where it wipes everything away, I've thought about it once really, really hard. So I like that they called out that app. I like that they threw that app out there. Um, use it with caution because if you're one of those people that like will get really devastated when it wipes away all your uh, all your writing it it might happen and then it's technology so sometimes it glitches and it like it doesn't work the way it's supposed to and it cuts early or whatever so um that that wraps up two for me what else do you have anything else to add for two no but this ride or die app terrifies me i don't think i would touch this with a 10-foot pole <laughs> it's really really great if you use it appropriately and your brain can handle that kind of a that kind of a thing and when you get to that point where you're like I'm, i just have writer's block i can't write anything it's it's a a way to move yourself <laughs> through all right let's let's go to chapter three uh how to learn anything deeply now i think this is a very very um aggressive title aggressive is probably not the right word what word am i looking for mike like it's Click a baby i don't know yeah it's clickbaity. It's like, this is an SEO anything. title for sure. <laughs> yeah. Anything. Okay. Uh, so what they're taking us through here is they're, they're taking us through a little bit more of the neuroscience, you know, how, um, axons and, you know, other neurons and stuff fire and how they connect together. Uh, my takeaway from this was basically, okay, we've got these different parts of our brain. We're going to do different things with, uh, with different parts of our brain. Retrieval practice comes into here. Um, Mark, Mike, do we get into, um, working memory and long-term memory in this section or is it in a different section? Um, I don't think it's in this one, at least not in my notes. No, it's, in, it's in four. Okay. So we're leading up to working memory and long-term memory. So we're, we're trying to make these links. Uh, we're trying to do, um, to do different things. Retrieval practice is what stood out for me in this chapter. So retrieval practice, in other words, you want to see if you can pull information from your memory um, or work with it in your own mind rather than simply looking at it, working through this. And I think, you know, this is where I really connected with um, Oakley, the author, the author, because as an engineering student, I would look at all these problems being done, these example problems being done, and I would think, okay, that's easy, right? <laughs> Piece of cake. And then I'd get the problem and I'd be like, oh my. I have no idea what to do, right? Like I have no, I don't even know how to start it. I don't know what assumptions to make. I don't know anything about this problem. And this is where that retrieval practice comes in where you kind of make it your own um, and you say, okay, why did they do that in the problem? Why did they do that in the problem? Why did they do that in the problem? And you're really connecting the dots here and you're retrieving other things from other parts of your brain, which then makes, the, makes those links stronger and makes those connections stronger. And honestly, if you want to, learn anything right this is this is where i like don't think the title is completely clickbaity if you run this process um it really significantly helps you learn in any context like in in almost any context is this retrieval practice and that's where i think they move out of the clickbaity title yeah the the thing that i got out of this chapter that i really enjoyed was the description of how the the chain links get forged together and this is where they've got some visuals to illustrate this, but this really doesn't have to do with the how-to part, but I really enjoyed the, the actual scientific description of what actually happens where you've got these 86 million different neurons in your brain and 
understanding how they actually get wired together was uh, was kind of cool. And they kind of build on that as they go too. But some of the big takeaways to me were that when you learn new things, you're building on things that you already know. And when you're creating these, these links, uh, the more that you retrieve these sets of links, the stronger that you make them, which makes a lot of sense. Like you just, every time you, you review that material, essentially you're reinforcing that set of links there. But the thing that really uh, I have the most notes on probably is like right at the end, they talk about, well, the real place where the learning is solidified is in your sleep. And <laughs> there's nothing you can do about that other than try to get more sleep. And here's some tactics for, for doing that. Uh, I have to say that they're how to fall asleep more easily. They talk about clearing your mind by making a list for tomorrow, avoid blue light from your phones and screens, make it dark, use a weighted blanket, put a mo- put your mobile phone in another room. Those are all great suggestions. Um, I've actually pieced together my own sleep routine and that's largely it. So I think I think I agree with that. But then the relaxation technique to fall asleep, like I tried this. It doesn't work for me. And this isn't the only version of this I've found. Any of those like articles, how to fall asleep in two minutes, that's essentially what they're talking about here. These have never worked for me. And just a little bit of a background on the sleep thing. Like I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I was 18 years old. So sleep is really important for me. I track my sleep using three different apps every single night. (laughs) Okay. Now I'm not constantly going back and looking at that data or saying, oh, I only got 57% last night. I better just batten down the hatches and stay, stay in bed all day because who knows what's going to happen. But the truth is that, you know, a seizure can be triggered by a lack of sleep. Now I haven't had issues in over 20 years. So like it's, it's under control, but largely because I'm doing everything that I can to optimize the the quality and the quantity of the sleep that I get. However, I, I feel like this relaxation technique to fall asleep, maybe this works if you are a student and you are Getting up early because you have to, but then staying up late because you want to. (laughs) That's immediately what I thought of when I read this is like, well, this would work for someone who's just like constantly wired from the the stimulus of, of like being in a college setting. But when you get into the real world, uh, don't get frustrated when that doesn't work because it's probably not going to work. Do you have trouble sleeping, Mike? Like, do you have trouble getting to sleep at night? I mean... I have never been able to get one of these hacks to work for me, but I don't think I have trouble sleeping. I'm not the type of person where I'm out the minute that my head hits the pillow. Uh, In fact, I get frustrated sometimes because like my wife and I will be talking and then all of a sudden she's out. (laughs) I'm like, where'd you go? (laughs) Yeah. So I, I am that person, right? So you would get frustrated with me because I mean, I can think about going to bed and then in five minutes I'm, I'm asleep. It is very, very rare for me not to be able to, I can drink a cup of coffee and then 10 minutes later go to sleep. Like it's not, you know, that might just tell you about my coffee consumption, but like it it is not, uh, It is not a challenge for me. So this section, really, I got it and I understand that. Um, What I think was interesting about this is I thought about it through the lens of like Red Bull, Monster, all of these energy drinks and the fact that like, at least I know for the guys, a lot of the guys I work with, you know, they'll they'll do what you say, like they have to be up for 8 a.m. class or 9 a.m. class or whatever it is. And then they're playing video games until two in the morning. Yep. And usually they're not living the healthiest life while they play the video games. So they're eating food that doesn't make sense. And they're, and it's like, okay, I could maybe see this, this kind of working um, through that. What I thought was weird about this chapter too, though, is we talk about some heavier, they're not heavy, but heavier concepts. So you've got 
recall practice or retrieval practice, you've got interweave, uh, interleaving, which is basically mixing concepts, right? Don't stay focused on the same concept, mix concepts together. You talk about the axons and stuff. But then we get into these other things, procrastination, exercise, nutrition, sleep, and it just felt like it came out of nowhere to me. That is like these two chapters kind of muddied, or sorry, th this chapter kind of muddied into two topics that I don't know if it should have been two chapters or not, but it, it felt kind of strange to me. Yeah, it is. It is a little bit, uh, a little bit weird. Uh, yeah, I like and, I like their one their one connection to some more current things was the ideal spacing intervals, and that is, um, you know, so uh, spaced repetition. So you'll see like yep. programs like Remnote comes around, and Remnote's purpose is to try to help you with spaced repetition, um, which I think that's uh, that was pretty cool. So that was a that was a good tie in. Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, I know you use Obsidian. I do too. There's different plugins and things that you can do that sort of thing with uh, those apps and. That's the value of something like Readwise, in my opinion. I don't use Readwise for for book notes, but they do have like the space repetition stuff. So there is something to be said for that. Um, I think if you're really trying to like ingrain this stuff, though, one of the big things that they touched on but really didn't hit hard is you got to exercise. You got to be active every single day. They talk about how exercise is critical for learning because it produces that brain derived new neutrophic factor. Is that what the name is? The BDNF. Where is it? Yes, brain-derived nootropic factor. Yep. Yeah, and then what that does is that actually promotes the dendrite spine production. So we kind of glanced over this, but like the way that the neurons wire together is they have these spines at the end of the, the little uh, octopus arms. And when you exercise those spines, the prickly parts that allow the things to, to latch together and create the links there's there's more that uh there's more of those those spines that that get produced they're they're more effective so if you have more of those spines in there they're stickier essentially the links get forged a little bit less um less actively like you don't have to work as hard in order for those those things to to click all right ready to move to four let's do it so how to maximize working memory and take better notes. Now, this is another one of those sections where I thought Mike is going to have lots of opinions on this because it said take better notes. So I was like, <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what he's going to say here. So let me give you the, uh, the overview on it and then we can, we can dive in. So one of the key points here is that the brain has two separate types of memory. So you've got working memory. Um, and for those of you who like computer analogies or metaphors, because that's another part of this book they talk about, right? This is the RAM. This is the memory that's quick accessed and it's, you know, it's happening all the time. And then you have your long-term memory and your long-term memory is your hard drive. And that's where you store things permanently um, to keep them around uh, a longer term. So they say true learning only takes place when things are moved from working memory to your actual long-term memory. So we're gonna move from working memory to long-term memory. Um, so then they start talking about the attentional octopus, right? So you brought the octopus in, and I thought this was actually pretty clever uh, in terms of the uh, attentional octopus, and they say that it's got slippery arms when our working memory situation, you know, the octopus is, is holding things and it's things, but things are slipping around and they're moving all around and it might get stored, it might not get stored. And then at some point that's going to shift over and like, we're actually going to move that into a place where it's not into that slippery, slippery phase. And I may have messed up the back end of that, um, the back end of that analogy, but then they give ideas to basically 
help make the best use of working memory. And they've given a couple of different ideas there. Um, and then they, they give ways to actually work into uh, long-term memory as well. So some of those are simplify your, the material down, break it into chunks, focus on the fundamentals, translate into more understandable terms, make task lists, put something on paper, and then they transition into the taking notes, uh, taking notes <laughs> section. So, so you're seeing a little bit of a theme here in terms of the way the chapters are, are laid out to where they'll, they'll talk about these sciencey concepts and then they roll it into a how-to and a more practical guide. And sometimes I think it works better than others. Um, their key here is that notes are a big part of helping you move it into long-term memory, which um, for the most part, I agree with, right? When I, when I go from just thinking about it to writing it down, the writing it down and whether I ever go back to that again is, is less relevant than the fact that it makes it more permanent in, in my brain. Yeah, so what constitutes knowing something is the follow-up question I've got here because, again, these are academics and we're trying to recall information to spit it back on a test, which is a, a valid form of you know doing something with the information. But I feel like once you get out of the academic setting, that has limited value. I was a really good test taker. A lot of the stuff that they were talking about, like the the tactics and like breaking down the different questions and things, I naturally did that, but I didn't ever have like a formal training or like the process. This is how you do it. It's just like, well, that's how you that's how you take a test. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was so good at taking tests that on the ACT, I think I ended up getting like a thirty, and I got like a thirty-two in the science section. It had nothing to do with my ability to learn science. It was my ability to take a test. So I'm like, oh, I'm really good at science. Well, I've kind of always wanted to be a chiropractor. I'll go into, I'll go, into, I'll go to college for biology. And I just absolutely, like, I, I worked my butt off. There was one test specifically, like, I spent the entire Thanksgiving break in the lab, like, fell asleep during the study, like, in the, the lab on, like, the Friday or Saturday. Now my professor comes in. He's like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You're going to do awesome in this test. I failed the test. Like I just could not do, could not hack it when it came to biology. And that was kind of like a false indicator of like, hey, you might be really good at this thing because I could figure out naturally Tests. how to take the test. So fast forward, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do now in terms of being a creator, that's a totally different application of information. You can read all the books, you can have all the information, you could spit back the, well, this is how you implement GTD. That means absolutely nothing in the world that I'm in right now mm -hmm. because it's, well, how do you actually apply that to make something new and not just like make something like, well, here's my book notes from whatever. And this is what David Allen has said, but like putting your own spin on, on these concepts, that's a totally different skill. And so I feel like the, the taking better notes, like, yeah, it's an important piece, but the type of notes that you're taking and then really what you're doing with those is important. And you have to think through, how am I going to use this stuff again in the future? Because the the default way, and I say default just because like the perspective that they're sharing in the book does not align with my goals and objectives for taking notes at all, <laughs> which means that my approach is very different, which is why it's understandable that, you know, creating concept maps is one bullet point at the yes. bottom of this one chapter in this very yes. short book when really like that's so important to all of my productivity and creativity workflows. Well, and, and that would make sense to me, like 
to, to the think about yours versus what they're doing, you're trying to make connections between things and then take those connections and make new content out of that, right? And that's yep. interesting and relevant and, you know, advances our way of thinking about it. For, for their situation as academics and we roll into like test taking, it's largely about recall and being able to apply that in a confined set of problems or a confined context that's related to a class or, or whatever exactly. that might be, which they're very, very different. Like they are very, very different environments. I teach my, my students all the time. You know, one of the things I don't teach is I don't teach specific software platforms. I teach them how to learn software because I have no idea what they're going to go do. I have no idea what application they're going to get into. Yep. And it takes them a little while to, to wrap their head around that. That's like, oh, it doesn't matter if we're modeling in Fusion 360 or if we're modeling in Tinkercad or if we're modeling something else. I need to understand what a revolution is because revolutions happen in all of those modeling platforms. And I need to figure out how to do it in all those platforms. So you're right. Like, but that that's the thing is, is that application with the the digital economy that we're all going to work in once we get out of school, that's less and less important. Who cares what the information is? Because when you're on the job, you're going to need to be able to write a good chat GPT query or a good Google search in order to surface it quickly. The thing that you're not going to be able to re reproduce easily and the thing that's going to add value, I think, is, well, what do you think about this? Or how do you actually use that? It's not just the, the recall. In the, the cohort I'm going through, I talk about three different levels of information. And there's the one level, which is just the the information where I've got it in the archive and I can go find it. Like that's the the bare minimum. And we've got technological tools that can help us with that. And then the next one is kind of revelation where I don't even need to go look for it anymore because I've internalized it. And that's kind of what they're talking about here. But the top level I call application. It's like, what mm -hmm. are you doing with it? And so we are doing people a disservice if we don't kind of push them in that direction. Like that's what I'm trying to do with the cohort is like, you got to make something out of this. I don't care if you don't think you're creative and I don't care if you don't have a blog or a podcast or a YouTube channel, you've got to decide yes. what does this mean to me and how am I going to use it? And if you're not going to use it, then it's not useful. Chuck it and find some information that is. Yep. I agree. I agree completely. All right. Let's talk about memorizing. So the next chapter is how to memorize. Um, and their key point out of this one is memorizing key pieces of information releases mental power so we can understand more complex concepts and solve more advanced problems. So they tie memorizing into almost establishing a foundation that lets us do some of these more advanced things that we've that we've been talking about. In general, I understand this even though I loathe memorization <laughs> with a passion. Like the idea of memorizing something for the sake of memorizing it actually stirs up some like frustration and maybe anger in me. Um, now, what I think is very, very valuable is if I work in a field and in the field, there's a base level of knowledge I need to know and I need to understand, but I don't call that memorization. I call that learning the base level of knowledge in the field, which I know that's a nuanced discrepancy there, but it's like, I'm not memorizing it just to memorize facts so I can regurgitate it back to you. I'm learning it because I'm going to apply it so readily and so directly that it just helps me apply it way faster. And that's what I think really is, it gets at the crux of it. And I see students all the time, right, having direct 
experience with this. I see students all the time. What are they trying to do? They're trying to memorize. They're trying to pass the test and then dump. And they will 100% (laughs) dump all of that information. They could care less about ever keeping it in their brain. Really, they just want to pass the test. And this happens, I think, more and more. This is why I actually got out of um, biology and healthcare and and any of those fields is because so much of that was, well, I just need to know every body part in the human body no like (laughs) why like what like what help does that does that give me at all but i see the balance in this right like actually learning and knowing things and having a base level of knowledge they would call it memorizing in the book but actually having that base level of knowledge does help you do things better so it's like if i can have an understanding of for for me right if i can have an understanding of material properties it helps me manufacture better I need to essentially memorize those material properties because it helps me manufacture better. It helps me design better. So yes, I get that. Um, but I kind of have a fundamental issue with the way they, they position memor- memorization as, I guess the way they prioritize it or the way they put it, they put it on a pedestal. They run us through a bunch of different memorization techniques, which I'm sure we'll get to here um, in a little bit. But the first thing I want to do, Mike, is I want to know what your thoughts are on memorization. <laughs> Well, I don't do a ton of memorization, but I do think that there's value in it. Um, however, I, I think there's like different levels of memorization here also, kind of going back to like the three levels of, of information that I mentioned. Like number one, let's just talk about like memorizing scripture. I feel like that's valuable because then I'm more likely to recall it. Yeah, I can go search for it, but sometimes it's the it's more valuable to have it like tip of tip of the tongue because I can I can use that to make better decisions. But there's another level here with uh, memorization, another uh, example that comes to mind with like musical scales because I've played guitar in the worship team for a long time, currently I'm playing bass. And one of the things that really helped me with bass in particular was understanding the scales. Now, there was a point where I was taking lessons and my teacher could say, okay, it's time to play the B major scale. And I could sit and I could think about it and I could do it. Like if he's walking through it and I'm playing along with him, then I could do it at the same speed that he did it. But that doesn't mean that I have actually memorized it to the point where I can use this in a live setting. Because when we're playing at church, okay, now we're going off the page. And oh, we just changed keys from B to E. Well, let's think through, what's the E scale? I can't, in the middle of the song, play through the E scale. At that point, I just gotta know, this is E, this is the third, this is the fifth. These are my options. (laughs) Yep. And uh, I've gotten to the point now where I can do that live, and it unlocks the instrument. It, It is way more interesting even for people who are listening, like this is the difference between somebody who is really good at an instrument and someone who is, you know, okay. And I can play the guitar in my dorm room and people think it it sounds cool, right? Uh, there's a whole nother professional level to be achieved when you have really internalized these concepts. But again, it's not just, can you spit it back when it someone asks you or when it appears on a test? So I think there's value in memorization. I like the where they talk about how memorizing helps you understand more complex topics better and solve more advanced problems. I mean, that is 100% true. When I understand one scale, it helps with the next scale. And then the next scale gets easier. But you still got to put in the work in order to really internalize all those things. And I don't think the the verbal memory tricks and the mnemonics are really the thing that's going to 
um, going to get you there. You got to you got to put in a bunch of effort. But then also they they talked about how um, I think it was this chapter that, or maybe it was the chapter before. I can't remember. But like, oh no, it's in, in this chapter. Half of your brain is involved in visual processing, but only ten percent is auditory. Okay, so why are we focused on the verbal memory tricks? And they do share some visual memory tricks here too, like vivid images and memory palaces, things like that. You know what else is visual and really great? Mind maps. <laughs> <laughs> like, you would do that. Well, I'm not saying like, oh, they definitely should have talked about it here, but it just illustrates the point that they're approaching this from a single perspective. So yeah. you, you got to kind of weigh the stuff that they're they're saying here. And there's some really good stuff that they're saying here, but then you got to figure out how do I actually apply this for myself? And the list of things that they're giving you in this 117 page book is not comprehensive. So yes. take the concepts, figure out how to own it. Yeah. So So let's get into those verbal and visual just a little bit more. They say acronyms for verbal, sentences for verbal. So acronym would be like rice, rest, ice, el compression, elevation when you twist your ankle. Uh, sentences are, which I had not heard this version of this, but it, it works. My very elderly mother just served us noodles. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Um, <laughs> the one that, the one that um, they completely missed in the verbal section for me and the reason I say like it's a complete miss is because I use it with the boys all the time and it is crazy effective. It's actually effective for me, but songs like we completely yeah. miss taking an idea or taking a concept and turning it into a song. I can't tell you the number of things we've memorized in, in our house um, based on putting some sort of musical melody behind it and then like you know, just repeating it and just singing it and, and it sticks in your brain. And then next thing you know, you're, you're singing it. So I think that was a huge, uh, huge miss in, in this section. Then the visual memory tricks, um, they say vivid images, basically the more crazy, the more fun, the more, the more wild your images, the more likely you are to remember it. And then I have never, I've tried this one. I've never been able to get it work, but the memory palace thing where you're like, Oh, I'm going to walk through the door and on the wall, there's the <laughs> picture of this and on the thing. And I think about like, Nope, I, that's just not me. Like I am not going to memorize anything. I'm not able to memorize anything through a memory palace or a memory map or whatever it might be. Um, so those are some of the, some of the things they threw out for us. Oh, metaphor. And then metaphor was the last one, which I use metaphors all the time. So that was yeah. a, that was a natural for me. I do remember when I was in Toastmasters, um, one of the, like they have different levels and the top level is like the, the distinguished Toastmaster and the, the DTM. So one of the, the DTMs in my my club had given me advice one time of, of doing that sort of thing. When you are trying to memorize a, a speech where you are essentially walking through a familiar place. So I don't know if this is exactly the memory palace. It sounded like it. Uh, it's one of the things I jotted down though, was like, you're going through and okay, so this part of my speech is representative of this part of my house. And as I'm walking through the front door, then I go to the next piece. I did find that helpful, but also that's my, traditional approach to this was I'm going to write out the speech word for word. I'm going to memorize the whole thing. And that's why when I got into the competition, I got up on the stage and I blanked out and like, Oh man, uh, this is really hard. I got to prove to myself that I can do this. So entered the next, you know, contest that I could. And that was the humorous speech contest. I think I told the story before. So I did it, you know, mission accomplished, but I ended up actually, I kept advancing until the the finals, which was the the whole state of Wisconsin and then upper Michigan where I lost to a, a professional comedian. So <laughs> I didn't feel yeah. too bad about that. But that was a helpful uh, a helpful tool that I used when I was going through all those different performances. So I think maybe if the stakes are higher, it can be helpful. 
Yeah. When it comes to those type of things, I'm much more improv than I am than I am memory palace. Yeah, you're one of it's the just, uh the table topics guys. <laughs> yeah, let's just let's just improv our way through this. Um okay, so let's move to six. We're we're gonna gain intuition and think fast. So how to gain intuition and think fast. Uh, in this section, they they call out declarative learning and procedural learning. So declarative learning would be um, tied to working memory. And it's basically those situations where you're really just trying to learn like a, the way I see, I saw it as a, a specific thing. You're not really trying to learn the connections, right? So I'm declaring that I want to learn this, co- this topic or this concept, right? And, and you're trying to get that, that piece of information when you get the procedural now you're thinking about like the links and trying to connect that to long-term memory and how does that that tie into these other things so i guess maybe and mike you can tell me if i if you think this is a wrong analogy my declarative would be making my atomic note and my procedural would be connecting those atomic notes to write a blog post or write an article or whatever whatever that might be like that might be a way that i could think about declarative learning and procedural learning would you agree with that? Uh, maybe. Um, I think you're probably right, but I think that's not the best example of the procedural learning. Okay. Um, because they talked about, and I used to play tennis in, in college, so uh, they talked yeah. about learning to serve. And the serve, if you really like break it down into the component parts, it's a very complicated motion. And um, almost everyone that I've tried, because I did... Uh, I did uh, tennis uh, instruction and coaching for a while too. Um, everyone I've tried to like teach to learn to serve, you have to like break down the individual pieces and walk them through at once and then basically say, okay, now just do it. Like forget everything I just told you and do it. And what they're talking about with the procedural learning systems is that's where you you learn by doing. And you do it enough and then it just kind of gets ingrained and you don't have to think about it anymore. So I think with like the the notes and the creating the links, you never really are going to get to that level of procedural learning where it just becomes something that you do. Uh, and then also I think related to this, but not discussed in this book is the whole idea of like the visual rehearsal um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we talked about a little bit in feel good productivity, the, the mental modeling uh, there's an aspect of like the procedural learning system where you could just watch video of the right way to do things without actually having to practice it yourself. And and that gets translated, that gets uh, applied. And then you've watched it enough that you can do it with, you can do it without all the step-by-step. This is how you do these sorts of things. In fact, some people learn better that way. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. My brother was, was kind of this way. He would uh, I was the oldest in a family of of three boys. My younger brother was four years younger than me, and then my youngest was four years younger than him. So my youngest brother was watching us play sports since he was really little. And by the time he actually got to play, he just knew how to do it. And he was yeah, the best soccer yeah. player out of anybody, anybody because it just it seemed so natural to him. And it wasn't that he was this phenomenal athlete. It was just that he had practiced this over and over and over again, he ended up working with a, a coach who really leaned on this this concept too of like watching the the right video. You know, you videotape yourself doing something the right way and you're trying to like change a, a stroke or something and then you watch that video over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then the next time that you go to play, it's automatic. Like what happened there? I don't know. My brain just created this image of this is the way that we do the thing. And then it did the thing without me having to think about it. 
Yeah. And I like the way they tie into that too. Cause, cause you said it without saying the word they use, they use the block, the black box metaphor, yep. uh, which yes, I mean, it actually, it, it very much is that I had never thought about it from a kids learning things from other kids standpoint, but that, that makes a ton of sense to me too, where procedural learning is like, Oh, I watched somebody do it so much that I just kind of know how to do it because I learned through their experience and I learned through what worked and what didn't. The thing it, this tied to me um, with the, they, they talk about using both systems later on in the, in the chapter. Um, and that the step-by-step is the declarative. And then the procedural is the more intuitive picking out patterns. And what I got to thinking about was like, you know, the, the cliche 10,000 hours gets you to mastery. Mm-hmm. Well, what are you doing there? Like you knew the process way, way earlier. You knew the procedure way, way earlier, but then you just had to do, and you had to figure it out and you had to intuit your way through and you, if you do that enough and you do that enough, you get to mastery and that's that, that 10,000 hours so that you're building that procedural system. So, um, I actually like this, this chapter. I thought this chapter, um, clarified these two points pretty well and, and brought in something new that I hadn't thought about before. So Agreed. I was a fan of this chapter. Me too. All right. So let's go to seven. Um, so seven is how to exert self-discipline even when you don't have any. Um, so self-discipline, they call it out. One of the things I liked is they called it out as a limited resource, um, you know, that it's something you can run out of, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. They say the best first strategy is basically just try to limit the amount that you need it, right? So it's like, <laughs> don't don't try to like have more, don't try to get more, just try to limit the amount that you draw on that, on that self-discipline. And I don't remember the definition or the distinction between the two. So Mike, if you could help us out on that, like I'm thinking here, willpower would be the same way, right? Like, okay, mm-hmm. my, my willpower is limited in, in terms of, of, the gas tank, right? There's only so much in there. So therefore, if I can just get into situations where I don't need the willpower, don't buy the chips, don't buy the ice cream, whatever it might be, that's a much easier way than trying to say like, no, I'm going to resist that every time I walk past it, you know, going through the kitchen. Um, Then they tie into something that we've tied into before um, on Bookworm in my short time uh, being a co-host on here is, is Goldwitzer's research. Uh, where Goldwitzer says, Goldwitzer says, hey, you're much more likely to do something if you have a plan, you t- decide when, where, and how um, you're going to do these things. I thought this was a good uh, section. I thought it was a little more concise section uh, in terms of they hit the point well, and then and then they were able to, to get out. So um, I was overall, I was, I was pretty pleased with this chapter. Yeah, this may be my favorite chapter in the whole book, to be honest. Um partially because of the statistic that they shared about Theodore Roosevelt. Do you remember how many books he uh, read? I don't remember the number. 150,000 for some reason is coming into my brain, but I don't know if I'm right. Well, I don't know the total number, but I do remember the cadence where even when he was president, he was reading a book a day. Yeah, that's crazy. That's that's awesome. Uh, something to aspire to, I guess. Well, when they're, they're <laughs> tying at the very end, which is like, why did he do it? He loved to read, right? Like, like, yeah, yeah there, there's, there's really, you know, he just loved to do it. So, yeah, well, so that is kind of the, the reason they used Theodore Roosevelt in the first place was he's kind of the poster child for self-discipline. And they tell a little bit of his story, how he was the sickly little kid and he just disciplined himself to the point where he was able to overcome a bunch of that. And basically anytime that he was told he couldn't do something, he's like, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. So there's something to be said uh, about that. But the the larger point that they're making in this chapter, and you kind of alluded to it, was the best way to practice self-discipline or to act in a disciplined way is not to have to use it. 
and design your environment essentially this they didn't say it that way but design your environment in a way that you don't have to exercise that discipline or or activate the willpower all the time and uh, that's a really a powerful concept i don't think they did it justice here and now i've read like entire books on this there's a whole big section in the extended mind by annie murphy paul which is really really good on this and I think that that is, uh, if you're going to try to practice one thing from this, that's the takeaway, is consider your environment, consider the choices that it is kind of encouraging you to make, and then figure out how you can tweak your environment so that you make the types of decisions that you want to follow through on. And um, this, they also talk about habits in here and how habits are kind of mental autopilot, but the applying the habits uh, habits idea to the environmental design. There's another great book that we've covered for bookworm called tiny habits, which speaks directly to that. So everyone's kind of read atomic habits. That's the the big popular one that's been on the New York times bestseller list forever. But the basis of James Clear's book is the research done by a guy named BJ Fogg, who is the person who wrote tiny habits. And so there's lots of visuals in there, which are great. They show like, if you have uh, a lot of ability to do something, it's easy to do, your motivation is high, then the prompt is gonna succeed at this point in the curve. And so you can kind of apply the uh, environmental design idea to create the situation where you either follow through on the habits that you, you want to do, or you can kind of reverse engineer this. So if you want to break a bad habit, you can make it harder to do. You can not buy the cookies and keep them in the pantry because you can go reach for them. Uh, and there's some really extreme examples of that type of stuff. Like I remember hearing a story one time about a guy who wanted to to not watch TV as, as much. So what he did is he uh, removed the batteries from the TV remote. So TV remote is still on the coffee table, but every time he sits down to turn it on, Oh, I got to go get batteries from the kitchen if I really want to watch TV. And that was enough friction that, you know, he didn't do it. He read the book instead or, or whatever uh, he wanted to do. So lots of really good stuff in here. But again, like if you're going to get <laughs> get any sort of value from it, you got to dig deeper. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I didn't even take any notes on the habits section because I've read Atomic Habits. I've read Tiny Habits. And like those were just so much more rich and valuable for me that I like I didn't even I didn't even capture anything there on um on habits. Yeah. All right. Moving on to moving on to 8. So let's let's talk about motivating ourselves. So this one's how to motivate yourself. What I liked here is they call out the fact that motivating yourself isn't just about how much you want something. It's about how much effort you're willing to put in to actually get the thing. And I don't know if I've never heard that before. Or I've never heard it presented in that way. But man, did I think that was a, a really powerful statement. It's like, oh, okay. And, and the way I've thought about it before is like action versus intention, where, you know, motivation, you know, is is this action or sorry, this intention side. And then I have to actually move it, move it over to action in order to make something out of it. Well, they kind of smush those two together here. I mean, they say, how much effort are you willing to, to put out there? Then they, they give advice on how to build and ma uh, maintain your motivation, find value uh, in your studies. And again, they link it back to school, right? So find value in your studies, work to experience mastery, set goals, and then work with others. 
they reframe here. So they talk about a, a section where they reframe the task um, to, to identify all the benefits. So it's a, let's take this task and let's get some benefits out of there. Reward yourself, which we've heard, you know, for mo most have heard many, many times. It's like, oh, if I do the following things, I get this reward um, when I'm done. Um, I liked the mastery connection here where I agree with them that like, if you can demonstrate to yourself that you're growing and you're learning and you're developing mastery, you are able to kind of see yourself moving forward and then that motivation will encourage. And it's kind of like that snowball uh, rolling down the hill. Uh, consider setbacks as opportunities to learn and grow. We saw that, like that was one of my action items from, from last time is reframe those setbacks or those failures into, uh, into what they mean or what they might mean in terms of opportunities to grow. Uh, goals, they broke them down into long-term milestone and process goals. And then they hit smart and night, they sorry, they hit smart, which I immediately went to uh, Ali Abdal's nice goals, which I like a lot better than smart goals um, and, <laughs> and called those two things out there. So that's, that's the high level of the chapter overall. Um, I thought it was, thought it was pretty good. Um, probably the weakest section for me was the way they discussed um, the goals, you know, long-term milestone and, pro and progress. Not that mm -hmm. it was bad, but it was just a matter of, I thought it was a very simple and high level way to, to talk about goals. Um, and again, for this context, it's probably, it's probably good, but for folks who have thought about it more, um, I just didn't think it was deep enough. I agree. Uh, although, uh, but the goal stuff specifically, uh, Again, I, I, I don't think that that's really where they should be concentrating the effort anyways. I do like the emphasis on motivation. Um, a while back, I had this inkling that motivation is more important than willpower because you hear the stories of these tiny little moms, their kid gets caught under the car and they're able to like lift the car off the kid. How does that happen? It's not willpower, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. at that point, you are motivated to do the thing, so you do the thing. And it may have actually been impossible if you had sat and thought about it, but the motivation was high enough. So obviously you don't wanna be in that constant state of fight versus flight, but if we could really figure out how to manage our motivation, like we could probably do a lot more, going all the way back to like the procrastination stuff at the very beginning. So I put out a call to the bookworm audience and I asked for book suggestions on the topic of motivation. And there was one that was really good called Master Your Motivation by Susan Fowler. So again, like there's a whole book that goes a lot deeper into these concepts that they're just touching on here. But just an example of like how this kind of maps in Master Your Motivation, they talk about how there are three things that we need to thrive, choice, connection, and competence. And so one of the things I jotted down here, the way they said it is a feeling of mastery is a powerful motivator. Well, yeah, that's the competence piece. But the choice and the connection are also uh, important aspects here. So they didn't really get into that. They did talk about how it's motivated by dopamine. Eh, maybe a little bit. I don't think it's mm -hmm. entirely. So uh, I don't know. I guess this is the danger of when you write a book based on your experience. Like you really need to, if you want to present a full picture of some of this stuff, you got to do a ton, of, a ton more research. And maybe they did the research and they just cut out a bunch of the stuff because they wanted to keep it real short and practical, which that's fine. You know, that, that's a valid approach, but it's it's not the one I I like, I guess. <laughs> yep. Okay, so now, Mike, this is where the book, I don't want to say like, is done for me, but I did not get a ton out of 9, 10, and 11. So I thought 9, 10, and 11 were, were light, how to read effectively, uh, how to win big on tests, and then how to be a pro learner. 
So um, I'm okay with kind of lumping these three together. If you're okay with lumping these three together, it all just depends on how you want to how you want to approach this. Um, and, and it wasn't that they were bad. It was just a matter of like I thought we got even lighter in these sections uh, for me. Sure. Well, I think chapter nine, how to read effectively, obviously in a, a podcast called Bookworm, this could be its own section, but they don't do a great job of explaining this, I think. Um, one of the things that stood out to me here is that when you're finished, write a three-sentence summary. That's actually something that I've added to my book notes. When I bring them over into Obsidian, I force myself to write a three-sentence summary. So I think that is a, a valuable tip there. But then they talk about how annotating is a great strategy for active reading, but the way that they described annotating, I don't think I'm going to use. But essentially, this is what I do with the mind maps that I create. I have the emoji system. So they advocate for important ideas, relationships between concepts, your own examples of references, information you don't understand or need clarified, summaries of key paragraphs, potential test questions. Again, my categories are going to be a little bit different, but essentially I like that idea of figuring out what's actually useful from this this information that you just uh, just consumed, um, right, they talk. Can I can I stop you? Yeah. So this is this is where one of my action items comes from this book, right? And it may be the only action item from this book. And, <laughs> and I'll elaborate more when we start talking about the next book and and where we're gonna go. How should I annotate? So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this next book, and I'm going to intentionally not highlight. Typically, I'm a highlighter, which they told me in this in this chapter. I'm passive and essentially doing a terrible job. Um, so I'm going to annotate this next book. So give mm -hmm. me the Mike Schmitz. Here are the key steps to annotating <laughs> while you read or annotating to get something out of this book. Um, that's hard to answer. So it, for me, it's going to be based on figuring out your own system for like the how to read a book concept. Uh, so that's essentially figure out what are the arguments the author is making, and then you're trying to decide what of this actually matters. But I do agree that just highlighting things, regardless of how much progressive summarization you do, sorry, Tiago, <laughs> is a passive exercise. So really what I try to do when I do my mind map notes is instead of just jotting down, these are the key ideas so I can spit them back when we have a conversation on Bookworm, I'm forcing myself to kind of think through like, do I agree with that? What do I like about this? What do I not like about that? And I try to incorporate more opinions as I go. So I think the very basic level, if you're doing this with just the physical book and a, and a pen, would be as you see something, underline it, okay? But then on the margin, like put in a little opinion note as to why you underlined it. I do this with uh, the stuff that we go through for our, our men's group. Uh, we, I've got a discipleship group that we go through the, the Ed Cole material. And so I've gone through these books maybe 10, 11, 12 times. There's like 12 books all together and we just keep going through them over and over and over again. But every time I go through them, I get something new. Every time I go through them, I buy a new book. We read a chapter for the week. I underline things. And then because I'm leading the group, I often will put like questions in the margins that I want to ask my guys. And it's kind of a thing now where people, I'll ask a, a, a random deep question and they're like yeah i knew you were gonna ask that one when i read that <laughs> so predictable you're so predictable yeah okay okay so I'll, I'll try that right like that's that's my one of my action items for this week is to when i read this next book i'm going to annotate it and ask interesting questions and i'm going to try to make my own opinions out of what the author is saying okay yep now chapter 10 how to win big on tests 
Uh, this one I don't really have anything for. I don't think this really applies to me. Uh, but maybe just briefly we could say that they advise to practice with old tests whenever you can, and that's probably a good idea. I'm kind of curious if uh, you make your old tests available to your students, you give them that as a resource, or if you would recommend this strategy for people. I do not. Uh, so I recommend the strategy, right? If you can, um, but that has really less to do with learning and it has more to do with just understanding the style of your professor, right? And, yeah. and they call that out here. Like they, they don't like tests. So here's my problem with chapter 10. I hate tests. I, I think tests are, are bogus um, in terms of what do they actually demonstrate to me in terms of your learning? So this is the educator side of me. I'll, I'll stop here in two seconds. Uh, I'll be on a soapbox <laughs> for, two, for two seconds. But it's like, I think they have value in terms of rote knowledge and we can, we can do that. But I don't think they do a lot in terms of telling me what you're actually capable of doing or unpacking really what you're capable of thinking because there's so many limitations on it. I have this amount of time. I can only ask this many questions. I can, you know, and like I can only set them up in certain ways. So therefore, this whole chapter rubbed me the wrong way from the very, very beginning because the goal was to do well on tests. The goal wasn't to learn. And I, I think that undermines of what we're doing. So that's, that's the short answer to your question. <laughs> cool. I think one of the things I liked out of this chapter, though, was they say focus on the process rather than on the end goal. And I really mm -hmm. like that idea. It's like focus on I'm going to study for three hours. Don't focus on I'm going to get an A on the test. But that has much less to do with tests and it has more to do with goal setting, right? Like set, set the, the, set the habit. Don't set the goal because you can't really control whether you're going to get an A on a test. You can control whether you study for three hours, but you can't really control whether you get an A on the test. So <laughs> that ties us back into smart and nice and, and all those other things. So now 11 was how to be, how to be a pro learner. Um, and really the, the piece they took away or the piece I took away from this, I think their main piece out of here was metacognitive uh, thinking or metacognition and then self-regulated learning. And they, the, the four steps they call out are understand the task, set goals and plan, learn, and then monitor and adjust, which makes sense, right? Like that's, that's yep. what we're going to do. We're going to figure out what we're doing. We're going to plan for it. We're going to learn from it. And then we're going to adjust that, that process. Yeah. So the whole idea of metacognition is, um, uh, interesting and topic to me, but again, they don't really get into it. I will call out, they did define it well, they didn't actually define it this way. They described it this way. But what I jotted down was metacognition is an extra brain outside your main one that thinks about thinking. So obviously mm -hmm. that has links to like second building a second brain, Tiago Forte. Uh, I think that's not really what metacognition is. Like it can be helpful. And I like the idea of a second brain. I don't really believe in the promise of just build this system and then you'll get all the insights. But that's one of the reasons I like connected notes apps like Obsidian is that you can kind of visualize how these things can connect together outside of your brain. But I've seen that same process actually work before I had those apps just by collecting better dots in the first place. So there's definitely something there, but they do give you a uh, piece of advice here, which I think is very helpful to become more metacognitive, start asking higher level questions. I believe if you ask the right questions, the answers usually become clear and we don't spend enough time asking questions. We need to spend more time thinking about just open-ended about things. That's why I do the, the personal retreat stuff every couple of months. And that's been really, really valuable. So I think that's a, a key takeaway and it's very, it fits very well with the theme of chapter 11. You want to be a pro learner? 
ask better questions and always be asking questions. You've got to be curious. If you're not curious, if you're just trying to collect the information so that you get the A on the test, you're doing yourself a a disservice. Anytime that you come across something that you don't really understand, that's an opportunity to, to learn something. That should be exciting to you. You should be curious about those things. And those opportunities are everywhere for us. But if you've if you take the approach, kind of like fixed mindset approach of, I have to learn all the things because I need to know all the things. If I don't know all the things, I might be in trouble. I might fail. That's that's dangerous. So there is like a, a switch that needs to be flipped there, but that's a, a great admonition to end the book. Well, and, and I think you talked about it in terms of, um, how do I say this? You talked about it the way I understand metacognition. So I had a really good friend who did a bunch of research in metacognition um, for my grad program. And um, you talked about it that way. It is, it's much less, in my mind, that second brain thing. That's a system for organizing yeah. information and, and planning things. It's much more about the, okay, I'm going into this class and what am I trying to get out of this class? Because what I'm trying to get out of this class will determine the way I think about this class. And when you got to the end there and you're like, if I'm trying to learn everything that's ever possible to ever know about the human body, okay, is that the right thing I should do? Or should I learn the core connections? You know, oh, this this system interacts with this system in this way and this and this and this way. And it's, it's like, it just depends on what you go into. But most people don't go to that level. They mm-hmm. go to the level yeah. of, you tell me what I need to know. I'm going to then do those things. Why am I going to do those things? Because you told me I needed to do those things, right? And then like <laughs> they don't go any metacognitive level higher than that about how might yeah. I use this? How might I apply this? What what do I get out of this? So yes, I think I think your your thinking on metacognition is absolutely right. Uh, and it's definitely not the second brain philosophy. It's much more of the just take a level level up and think those hard questions and think and think about those things. So yeah. Um, cool. All right. So our last, the last section that they have here, it's not actually numbered as a chapter, but it's a checklist. And the way I interpreted this is basically it's a summary of the key points. Exactly. Of, of all 11 <laughs> chapters, right? So basically they, they told us what they were going to tell us in 11 chapters and then they summarized it all and they plopped it at the end and they said, and here you go. Uh, here's, here's our last little summary. So effective, good, not a problem with it, but, um, it's really just a, a summary to, to walk away with. Yep. hundred percent. All right, good. So we made it through, um, at this point we need to talk about action items. So would you like me to go first, Mike, since it's my book, go for it. All right. So I may only have one action item out of this book and it is what, um, you and I talked about which I'm honestly blanking on right now, annotating. Okay, whew, okay, guy, I got that. <laughs> so it's annotating, and here's why it comes out. I am going to read the next book that we're going to read for Bookworm as a physical paper book. I don't ever do this, right? I also intentionally did not buy this book. I got this book from the library, which would prevent me from highlighting it. So I'm not allowed (laughs) to highlight this book. And and like I did this on purpose because it's like, okay, I need to set up these things. So therefore I don't default to my old, my old style. Because what I typically do is I typically highlight too much. Then I summarize and I summarize, I summarize, right? Like, uh, and and try to get down to the the key points. Well, now (laughs) I can't do that. So if I'm going to take notes on this book, I have to use an external mechanism to take notes on this book. So I'm going to read in one section and then I have to either use a mind map or a separate notebook or a note sheet in obsidian something to take notes on this so that is my 
that is my action item for this book is I'm going to read a physical book and I'm going to annotate that book and see if I think it's a better system than my current system for book. <laughs> All right. Well, I would uh, encourage you to annotate, but get a book that, uh, that you own. So maybe do it, do it this way for the next one, but don't write it off if it doesn't work. Like there's different methods. One of the more popular ones that I think is pretty brilliant for this type of thing is creating like your own personal index in the back where you basically just jot down like the pages with the big ideas. So then you can go look at, oh, when I read this, here's 12 things that really stood out to me. I, I don't do that because I do the mind map stuff, but. Maybe I can do that with with an index card, right? I'll throw an index card in the sure. back and I can, I can do that with an index card. Okay. Yeah. Uh, another th helpful thing with context for that, by the way, uh, Sean Blanc told me one time whenever someone would recommend a book to him, he would, he does the index in the back, but he would also get an index card with the person who recommended the book to him and put that in the, the thing. Cause that's additional context. Like, well, why do I even have this book? Oh, yeah. well, Mike recommended it. I really appreciate Mike's recommendations. So that adds more credence to the ideas, you know? So anyways, my action item comes from chapter four on taking better notes. <laughs> uh, they didn't, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot in that chapter that I really liked, but they did mention split notes. So you've got the notes and then you've got kind of your annotations about what you took notes on, on the side. And the uh, version of that, that I immediately thought of was the, this like Cornell notes style where you've got the notes and then kind of the annotations, like the footnotes essentially on the side instead of at the bottom of the document. Uh, I also purchased the Cornell notes plugin for Obsidian from TFT Hacker. So I've got that already. I may as well give this a shot. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with this. I don't even know what scenarios I'm really going to try to, to work on this with. I guess I could start if I'm going to be writing things by putting in footnotes and then just have those appear on the side. Maybe if I do that once or twice, it, it will spark some insight and this will gain some traction. But I'm really not expecting a lot from this one. I just, have, well, I have that. I may as well give it a shot. Have you done Cornell notes ever? in your life? I have not. Okay. So my suggestion to you is go look up, you know, something quick, something easy, a five minute video or, or some little tutorial on it. Um, it's, it's a procedure for some people. It works really, really well. So like some of my students in class will use Cornell notes or a Cornell notes system. Um, and it's very, very valuable to them because it gives them a way to organize information. And then what it, what you find is that some or a lot of people will lose track of the things they wanted to ask or the things mm. they got confused on. And it, there's a whole section there of like, oh, these are the things I need to ask next class. So for a class situation, it makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure how it's going to work for a book. So I'm actually trying to or I'm actually intrigued to hear uh, how that how that goes for a book. Well, I don't think it's going to work for a book at all, to be honest. But as I was thinking about the uh, like the writing process and I've I've got a, a, a plug in already for like footnotes. Uh, I could see that being helpful to have those instead of at the bottom of the document on the the yeah. side. Yep. So I guess I'm kind of banking on as soon as I try that and I see it on the side, that that's going to trigger something in me to want to create more of those, but I'm not optimistic. Okay. <laughs> Understood. Understood. All right. So now we move on to style and rating. It's my book, so I will go first. Um, overall, um, the style, we've talked about this a couple of different times. It was set at a level, I think for folks who really haven't thought about this, um, very much, and they're really just getting into learning and, and approaches towards learning and some of these high level concepts, 
Um, I agreed with Mike, although I don't think I would have said it this way uh, coming into it. Uh, very student-focused book, right? Very, very driven on the on the student. For those reasons, it drops down um, on my on my rating scale. Uh, I liked that they they were clear, like there wasn't anything that was difficult to understand. I thought their examples were pretty good in terms of their examples. I thought they did a good job coming in and summarizing at the end, so you could kind of just see it one more time um, as you were going. But overall, um, I'm probably going to give this book a three because the, I think the material was good and it was um, it was not inappropriate material, right? Like, so to move down to a two for me, I think I think we have to inappropriate is probably the wrong word, but we have to like actually be. I, I'm not good with the content. I'm, I was good with the content in this book. Um, I just wasn't good at the level that it was written or. Um, at the amount of depth that they went into certain things because I wanted, I wanted more. So I'll give it a three. All right. Well, uh, I think that I have two separate ratings for this book. <laughs> uh, if you are a student, I think it is probably a four star book. Okay. And, uh, I, I think that in the, you would probably know better than, than I would, but I think, uh, a lot of students, they don't, they're not productivity nerds. Like that's something you learn once you get out into the real world because it's a survival uh, mechanism. Yes, absolutely. So there's a lot of stuff in here that if I'm a 20 year old, this is brand new. First time I've heard about the Pomodoro technique and a lot of the concepts in this book, then this could be uh, revolutionary in, in my, in the world that I know that <laughs> exists <laughs> um, for myself for probably a lot of people in the bookworm audience who are not students i think you nailed it that it is a three-star book um it's it's all right <laughs> yeah. there's some interesting stuff in here uh it's not all well I, I knew that already i really like the visuals with the the octopus arms and the forming the the links and the chains uh, that's going to stick with me. And I feel like that's valuable. Is it going to change anything that I'm doing? No, but had I read it four or five years ago, maybe. So I don't know. Like, I, I don't think it really left a dent for me, but I, I think for the right person, this could be a, a great primer to, uh, to the productivity world. Like as a, as a first first entry into this, this type of material, this could be, could be valuable. It's still probably not the the first thing that I would recommend. I'm having trouble thinking of, you know, if someone were just getting into productivity, what would I recommend? Uh, it's definitely not going to be getting things done by David Allen, although that's probably most people's entry into this sort of stuff. And again, like that's perfectly fine for the right type of person that could be revolutionary. Uh, I'm having trouble filling in that, that blank. Uh, I feel like there is need for that sort of thing, but this isn't it. It it could have been, it would be nice, you know, if I could, oh, this is, you know, you're just getting into productivity. You got to pick up this one. Yeah. Uh, the science-based tools to become better at anything, like that subtitle applied to a different book, <laughs> uh, I feel like is uh, is able to deliver on that promise, but this book didn't didn't quite do it. It's not to say that it's it's bad, but... I'm sorry. I really like the way you called out the fact that it um, it was a primer. 
I would have never gotten to that word, but man, that actually, that word actually makes a lot of sense. Like this is a primer on this stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a great word. Yeah. But it's not even the best, uh, the, the best primer, I think, or at least it's not the ideal version of the, the primer. There's uh, a different version of this book that is better for that specific mm -hmm. use case. I don't know exactly what it looks like. <laughs> I don't know who wrote it, but it's got to be out there. It's got to be out there, right? Yeah. All righty. So now we are at the stage where we think about upcoming books. So Mike, what are we working on for the next episode? Well, I had originally said influenced by Robert Cialdini because <laughs> I do want to read that. However, I'm going on vacation shortly, so we've got a short turnaround for this next book. And I am not reading 570 pages in the next week when I'm trying to wrap up a cohort and everything else. So so Mike Mike suggests that book, right? And we, we start looking at it and I go, Mike, do you know this book's like 600 pages? And I was like, I don't think I can pull that. I don't think I can pull that off in that amount of time. He goes, no, the, the last one wasn't that long. Like why, why is this one that long? So they did a major revamp on this book between yes. the edition you read and now. Yeah. And it went from basically 300 pages to 600 pages. So it doubled in length. And I did not realize that when I said, oh yeah, we'll just do the updated one. Cause you always do the updated one. <laughs> yep. Yep, yep, yep. So we're gonna put that one on the back burner for now. Uh, I am going to pick a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time though. And that is Six Thinking Hats by Edward De, De Bono. Uh, the international bestseller that has changed the way the world's most successful business leaders think. And I think that this kind of breaks down each one of the hats as like a different perspective in terms of thinking about your business. And uh, so that naturally is kind of an interesting topic to me. But I feel like the six different perspectives could lead to a very cool conversation. So it's a pretty short book. Uh, well, there's a bunch of chapters, but it's like 160 pages, not 560 pages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'll be able to finish this one before next week when we have to record again. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. That that worked for me too. And when, when when we switched to this one, I was like, okay, this is much more this is much more in the style for the for the short turn short turnaround. So so that was yeah. really good. What are you picking after that? Do you do you have one? So I meant to talk to you about this before, and I totally blanked on talking to you about this before. So we're gonna go ahead and do this live and we're gonna see what you think. You kind of soft approved it before. So let's see if you're still on board with this one. <laughs> Um, or if I was just being nice, trying well, yeah, to get you yeah. to come talk which to me if you about books. Which if you were, that's fine, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll go find another one. But I think it would be fun to read The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly, right? And that was the understanding the 12 technology forces that will shape our future. What do you think? Let's do it. Are you, are you interested in that one still? Yeah, I read a different Kevin Kelly book. I can't remember if it was for Bookworm or if it was just a gap book, but I really enjoyed it. And The Inevitable is kind of the one that was referenced as like, this is the definitive work by this guy, so... I think this makes uh, a lot of sense. And I think it's probably uh, a version of this topic that I know you really want to talk about that will still be interesting to the audience. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, just so you know, uh, in the background, right, I, you know, I'm new, right? I'm coming into this and I start throwing, throwing books at Mike, right? And he knows the audience way better than I know the audience. So I'm learning and, and everything going. Um, and I think this is a, this is a good version for you all so hopefully that's <laughs> true and if it's not feel free to give feedback and i will learn as much as i can uh, from that feedback so um, that's the one um, so the inevitable by kevin kelly 
Uh, Mike, do you have any gap books that you're reading right now? Not before the next episode. However, I'm going to probably read a whole bunch of gap books while I'm on vacation. So maybe I will have some to report back. Okay. And then mine is going to be the exact same gap book I was working on before. It's called Triumph of the Lamb. Um, And it's because I did not make as much progress in that as I needed to. And I want to keep reading that. So is there a specific definition of a gap book? Like, is there like a hardcore definition, Mike, of a gap book? (laughs) Like, do I have to finish Uh, it in the gap? (laughs) No, you don't. Um, and I don't, you don't even have to finish it. There, there's okay. no rules with these gap books. Okay, I just. I In fact, that's a that's a general rule that is worth calling out. Life's too short to read bad books, yeah. so there's plenty of them out there. If you're trying to read one and it's just not clicking, feel free to put it down. Come back to it later, or don't. Completely up to you. Pick up something else. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, find things that are gonna gonna tickle your curiosity. Uh, as we talked about in this episode, that's the important thing if you really want to learn. So, Well, and, and I can tell you that the one that's next on the list, but I won't call it a gap book yet. At some point I will. Uh, but it's called Every Good Endeavor by uh, by Timothy Keller. That's the one I, I need to read that one for an actual project. So it's got to be a gap book here coming up pretty soon. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And if you are reading along with us, pick up Six Thinking Hats by Edward Devano. And we will talk to you in a couple of weeks.